time that you bring the, the preschool kindergartners over, you know. You just don't know what's going to happen. I, I, uh, as, we're, as we're going through the prophets, and we've been focusing on some of the prophets in this Advent season because, well, the message of the prophet was, was to, to prepare the nation for, to prepare God's people for the coming of the Messiah. That, that God's son was coming, God's king was coming, his kingdom would be established, and to, and to prepare people for his coming. And so as we prepare ourselves, again, to celebrate the, his first coming while we anticipate Christ's second coming, it seems fitting again to, to hear from those same prophets. And we turn from, uh, well, we looked at Daniel, we looked at uh, Isaiah, and now the prophet, uh, the prophet Micah. Yeah, Daniel, Isaiah, and now Micah this morning. And, and, and as, we're, as we're looking at Micah, I, I, I go through this prophet and I'm, I'm convinced that, that the question that's being posed here, among some others certainly, but the, but the overarching question of this book that's being posed is where can I find peace? I was mentioning that to somebody um, earlier, earlier in the week and they said, well, is, is that an appropriate sermon title or talk title for the day that you're going to have all the kids up front doing their Christmas program stuff? I said, oh, yes. Where? Where can I find peace? There's a lot of, there's a lot of hustle and bustle. There's a lot going on. There's a lot to prepare. There's a lot to cook. There's a lot to, to, to think about, presents to buy, um, various things to attend and activities going on and as I mentioned earlier in the week, it's a, you know, maybe by January or February, I've got, still got to get to that Christmas letter. There's cards to write, cards to address, and oh, in the midst of this season, of all the times of years, why is it that in this time of year we are so pressed to be at peace when this time of year is supposed to be all about peace, all about God's peace. Maybe, maybe we have difficulty even at this time of year finding peace because we're looking in the wrong places. We're trying to find it other ways through other means instead of God's peace. The prophet Micah puts before us, where can I find peace in the midst of the turmoil that's going on in your life? And I don't have to take a poll this morning. I don't have to, have to query people to know that there is peace lacking in your lives. There's peace lacking in my life. There's, there's stuff that presses in, whether it's concerns, whether it's worries, whether it's trouble, whether it's sadness, there are many things that sneak in and would steal, would eat away at our peace. What do we do about it? Unfortunately, God's people have a, have a history of a habit of trying to find peace in ways that cannot bring peace. That's something we can learn from this prophet that prophesied the same time as Isaiah, roughly 700 years before the time of Christ. And yet we'll, we'll find in this book that he says some things in specific detail concerning Christ's coming. It gives us all the more confidence in all else that he has to say about God and his son and his peace. Where can I find peace? Well, the first thing that I, that, that I want us to consider is don't waste time looking for peace 
through what I call peace placebos. What do I mean by a placebo? A placebo is when they're, when they're, when they're experimenting with, medic, with medications. They have a new pharmaceutical. They have a new drug, a new medicine. They want to try, and they go through these trials. And a certain number of people in the trial will get the real medication, and the other people in the trial will get a placebo. It's also a pill. It might be colored very nicely. It might be, be presented and stamped and in one of, those, one of those bubble packages that you just can't open anyway. And, and yet it's not, a, it's not real medication. It's just stuff pressed into a pill shape. It's a placebo. It has no medical effect whatsoever. And yet, by taking the placebo, sometimes people feel better. They think they're doing something. They think they're taking something that will help them. Peace placebos are like that. Peace placebos are those other things, those other means, those other places by which we think we can have peace. And what I want to propose this morning is the peace placebos that Micah was confronting his people about. God's prophet was confronting God's people about the places they were trying to find peace where there would be no peace. And I think it's worth us considering those because we, we as, a, as, a, as a people and within a culture tend to look in the same places and we find the same nothing as concerning peace, fullness of life, rest and contentment, that which an anxious heart longs for. Don't waste time on peace placebos. And if, if we were to do an overview, then uh, in this book you find that there are the first three chapters identify three different places where you won't find peace. And yet the people have been trying. First of all, idols and military might. Let's just look at in chapter 1 of the book of Micah. And if you're using a pew Bible, you'll be on page 776. 767777. And just to, to point out a couple of, as, as, we, as we enter the book of Micah, which is parallel to the book of Isaiah, it's kind of like a mini Isaiah. Same things going on in Isaiah are going on in the book of Micah, and yet it's only seven chapters. So in the book of Micah, we open chapter 1, and we find in chapter 1 there's false securities. What false securities are the people trusting in instead of their God? They are trusting in idols, verse 7. All her carved images shall be beaten into pieces. All her wages will be burned with fire. All her idols I will lay waste. God is confronting his people and he's saying, you've been trusting in idols instead of trusting me. But not only idols. Not only idols are things carved that they, that they set up in a temple someplace in worship. There's another place they go to security. And it's a little closer to our culture. Look at verse 13. At first, it seems kind of just an odd verse out of place. Harness the steeds of the horses to the chariots, inhabitants of Latius. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. What's being referred to there? The horses and the chariots in the city of Latius. Latius was a, was a fortress city that King Solomon established. God had told his people, You're, when you desire a king, you can establish a king from among your own people, but the king must not multiply horses and chariots and wives to himself. And that horses and chariots thing is the king is going to be tempted to build a large army to establish the security of his throne. But the security of his throne needs to be by the God whom he serves and leads these people in serving. Not in his military might that he, like all the kings of the world, might try to build up and establish himself. Very quickly, the sons of David fell into that trap of relying on their own strength and the strength of military might. Peace in our time, peace in our world, will not be established merely by 
the false idols that we trust in, even if that's our own means of physical or military security. In chapter 2, the, we, the, the, they're confronted concerning the oppression, power, the use of power over others. If I want to secure myself, one of the ways I'll do that is I'll exercise power or authority over others. I will try to control the situation. When tensions go up, when uncertainty increases, when things begin to get out of hand, can I say control freak? The, the a tendency to try to tighten things down, to, to make snap decisions and to grab control in some way, we've got to get, get control of this thing. Well, it plays out across people in the same way, that, that I will be at peace, I will be secure, I'll be okay, I'll preserve my well-being, even if it's at the cost of others. On a national scale, it looked like this. The elite, the power class, the ruling peoples, they thought nothing of oppressing others to better their own situation. Look at chapter 2. Chapter 2 of the book of Micah. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it. Why? Because it is in the power of their hands. Because they can. What is it that they can do? They covet fields and they seize them. And houses and they take them over. They oppress a man and his house. They oppress a man and his inheritance. So, so taking other people's property, taking the inheritance that in Israel was given to a family to continue in that family. And others who have power, they're going to increase their strength. They're going to increase their lot in life. They're going to make their situation better at the cost and at the oppression of others. Look at verse 6. There's the limiting of free speech. Do not preach, thus they preach, or thus they say. One should not preach of such things. One should not preach saying that disgrace would overtake us because that's not going to happen. Bad things aren't going to happen to us. God is not going to hold us accountable here. Stop it with that negative message. So there's a control on the prophets. Should that be said, O house of Jacob? There's a, there's a pressing in of, of, of free speech. There's a bringing the masses to poverty. Look at verse 9. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Now there's a couple of things going on there. From my young children you take away my splendor. I think of the kids that were up here earlier. And, and certainly in the, in the rich getting richer at the cost of the poor getting poorer, there is the good things, the blessings of the land for these children are going to be taken away from them. As this whole nation spirals downward, there's going to be a taking away of the nation into captivity and the whole glory of the land that should have been handed from the, the parents' generation to the children. The children aren't going to receive it. The glories of God are going to be taken away from these children. And as idolatry idolatry increases, and as a knowledge of God decreases in the society, as, as speaking for God is tamped down, as it said, don't say such things, then the children are also prevented from the glories of God in knowing Him. The goodness of God, the greatness of God, the graciousness of God is held back from the children. That verse troubles me, verse 9 of chapter 2. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. When we prevent as a society, as a culture, when we hinder the opportunity for children to know of the God who created them and who will redeem them. 
the effect of that is going to carry on in the culture, but also on those children, not only in life, but forever. You take away my splendor forever. Also taking, uh, taking faith right out of children's reach. Now, now, I don't say these things to say that Micah is looking ahead all the way to 2013. What I'm saying is characteristics of a culture that has, a, that, that has been adrift away from God don't look too different in 700 B.C. as it looks in 700 or rather in 2013 A.D. It doesn't look so much different across 2,500 years or so. Things haven't changed so drastically because people are still the same. All those years of progress haven't taken us very far. A third aspect that Micah confronts in terms of where do you find peace? You will not find peace in strength. You will not find peace in false idols that you set up for yourself to have hope in. You will not find find peace in, in strengthening your hand and increasing your wealth at the expense of others. You will not have peace. You will not find peace in an emptied religious practice. Look at chapter 3. In verse 4, They will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. They continue to say prayers, but those prayers are not heard. In verse 5, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead the people astray, they cry peace. They have a message of peace, but it's an emptied message, and it's not God's message. They cry peace, peace when they have something to eat. They declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. These are prophets who preach for pay. These are prophets who preach a pleasing message for people of what they want to hear because that's what people are going to reward them for. It's a, it's a religion still. There's the practice of godliness, as, as, is, as is warned about in 2 Timothy 3.5. There's the form of godliness, the practice of a religion, but the denial of of its very power, denying the power of, denying its effect on us, denying our accountability to the God whose message we would proclaim. There's an emptied religion. I chose that word purposely. I know you think we should say empty religion, but it's an emptied religion. The core of the truth and the power of that faith has been pulled out of it. Don't say that say this instead. Let's focus on this instead. Let's focus on happy things that everybody can share and participate in. We don't want to say Christmas because that's too much about Christ. We'll say happy holidays instead. Let's empty it a little bit so that everybody can participate together. Now what you say about Christmas time, saying happy holidays or not, that's not the real point, but, but there's, a, there's been an emptied of the faith of these people and it leaves nothing in its place. Look at, look at verse 11. The same thing continues again. Its heads give judgment for a pride. It's for, a, for a bribe, rather. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination with money, yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster is coming upon us. Yet, God says in verse 12, Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. There's trouble coming. And as we know from that broader prophetic stream, there is captivity coming upon this people. Their emptied religion will not save them. Though they said, well, isn't the Lord with us? It is in his temple here. But it's emptied. The faith is merely a form. In fact, if you flip over to chapter 6, there's a parallel to this in chapter 6, verses, verses 6 to 8. 
With what shall I come before the Lord? In verse 6 of of chapter 6. What shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? They're still bringing sacrifices. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression and the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. There's still the practice of religion in the land, and yet there's the denial of its power. There's the going through the motions of coming to the temple or church, and yet there's the the denial of any accountability of God's truth into my life and how I'm going to live in the midst of it. And he says there will be no peace there. In fact, your actions are going to have an effect on others around you. The children are going to be affected, as I described earlier, because of you and this empty religion. No, Jerusalem isn't going to be spared because of the temple. In fact, because of this emptied religion, because of this form of faith without any reality to it, because of this practice of we'll attend, although we don't really believe, we're looking for our peace somewhere else. Because of that emptied religion, there's going to be a consequence of captivity coming upon this people. Now, it's Advent season, and we have an Advent candle. I was actually going to have one of the pre-K kids, speaking of chaos, I was actually going to have one of the key pre-K kids help me light the candle this morning, but in the midst of them coming up and everything, we, 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 uh, we just missed that, and so I thought, well, I'm going to a pause, and And now's a good time to turn our attention to this candle because what is this about? How did this come about in the church? And it in the in the in the northern hemisphere, Christmas, the celebration of Christ's coming, comes at a dark time of year. It comes at a cold and and in our in our climate as well. It's a it's a dark and gray and a little more dismal time of year. And the church thought, well, no, this isn't a dark and gray time. This is a a time of light coming in the midst of darkness. And a a candle does that. And so a series of candles to bring. Light into the midst of darkness. And even in the midst of those dark, the purple candles were for royalty, but the third one, the third week, was the candle of joy. Because in the midst of that dark season, that as you approach the winter solstice is getting darker and darker, in the midst of that darkness, there is joy at the coming hope. Because the candles, week by week, one after another, they point to that coming light. They, come, they point to that coming day that was true in his first coming. There will be peace. Where can I find peace? Well, don't waste your time on peace placebos, but God's peace is within reach. Look at chapter 4. Chapter 4 is the center. In fact, if you look at the, uh, at the slide that I still have up, you see there's a parallel. There's a parallel structure in the book that points toward that center. The idols and the military might in chapter 1 are the last thing mentioned in chapter 6. The power and the injustice, the oppression in the society and in the culture in chapter 2 is again mentioned halfway through chapter 6. The emptied religion is again picked up at the very opening of chapter 6. All that's in between those two is chapter 4 and 5. So there's a mere image backing back out. The focus of Micah is in chapters 4 and 5. And chapter 4 tells us there is 
a peace within reach. God's peace is within reach. God's peace is coming. In the midst of that darkness, trouble coming on Zion. Look at chapter 4 and verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and the people will flow to it, and many nations will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between his peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. God's kingdom will reach over all the earth. That's what's being said there. It will come. It doesn't look like it at times. But God's kingdom and God's rule and in that God's peace will come. And when it comes, listen to the description in, in verse 3. And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into, prune, into pruning hooks. No more war. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But there'll be a time of prosperity. They will sit every man under his vine, under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. There will be peace. You look at the world stage today. You look at what's going on with Iran. You look at what's going on with Syria, what's going on with Israel, and what is going to happen in the Middle East. We don't know. It's a mess. This certainly is not a time of peace. We continue to have troops and, uh, and troops being killed in Afghanistan. We have pulled out of Iraq, and we have left a mess behind. Where will there be Peace. There will be peace among the nations in a time that's coming. In fact, the UN is involved in this effort. In fact, if you go to the UN in New York City, you would find outside, inscribed in stone, they have grabbed hold of Micah chapter 4 and verse 3, and they've put that there. They've said, and they shall be beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. That's the goal of the UN, to end war. That's the goal of the United Nations, to bring peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Will it work? It won't work. It's, I'm, don't get me wrong, I'm glad there's a body where nations can come together, and I believe in the midst of those dialogues and discussions and accommodations, or whatever, there, there have been wars and more killing prevented. However, it's interesting that the United Nations has grabbed hold of that verse which speaks of the coming of Christ and has said, we will bring peace. We will make peace because there is a futility of imposing or bringing or making a peace without the Prince of Peace. Where will I find peace? I will find peace only in the Prince of Peace. The world will not make peace apart from his coming. In fact, wars will get worse and worse prior to his coming. The UN will not be able to establish peace. We will not be able to establish peace on our own as well. You know, the, there's a, I, I read an interesting thing this week. Uh, techno, technology, technology is spinning wildly away. There's a man named Ray Kurzweil. I don't know if you've heard of Ray Kurzweil, but Ray Kurzweil is a very bright guy. He's, he's what many talk about as a, as, a, as a futurist. He's the director of engineering for Google. And one of the things he does for Google is he tries to look further down the road at what's coming and help position Google to be down the road with it as it's arriving. Help putting Google in the driver's seat rather than following and reacting. 
Ray Kurzweil was talking in, the, in, this, in this interview on CNN about what it's going to look like in our lives 10 years from now. He says that within 10 years, with the advances, that, with all that's been done already with, the hu- with human DNA, with the human genome, with all that we know already, and the advances in, in, in biomedicine and genetic engineering, within 10 years, we are going to be able to turn off the genes that are affected with aging and with various kinds of diseases. Doesn't that sound good? I don't know, I don't know if, they can, if, if they've isolated the hair loss gene yet. <laughs> but they'll be able to just turn it off. Could we turn off aging? Could we turn off diseases like cancer and heart disease? Could you flip that genetic switch young enough or maybe mess with the DNA even before fertilization in ways that you could create and birth children that are not subject to mortality? They're not going to age? They're going to grow up and then just be late 20s and life will be wonderful and the diseases won't come? The aging won't come? Is that, is that what Ray Kurzweil is saying? There is a press in genetic engineering. We could hold the keys to life and death. We could not only in the United Nations impose and bring about peace without the Prince of Peace, we could perhaps even create everlasting life without any regard to the Prince of Life, God's Son. That's the aim. We can do this on our own. We can save the nations. We can save the planet. We can save humanity even from death. Look how clever we are. Where can I find peace? Maybe it's in genetic engineering. What will God do with that? Think about that for a minute. What will God do with that? How will God react to that? Is that where God intends for us to find peace? Or did God actually do humanity a favor when he chased them out of the garden after the fall so that we wouldn't live forever like this? We wouldn't live forever in this fallen, broken, spiritually separated state because that was not God's intention. Well, if I can't find peace in my in my um, prosperity, even at the cost of others. If I can't find peace through politics in the United Nations, if we're not going to find peace even by the medical advances that could somehow preserve human life just a little longer till the next advance comes, if that will not bring peace, where will I find peace? Chapter 4 says it's coming. Chapter 4 says it's within reach, but it wouldn't hurt to pause here as well and say, with all that we've read about the culture and the UN, they're out there, you know, they're trying to beat uh, swords into plowshares and just hope it works. If, does, does all of this that's described in Micah, does it have to do with out there or does it have to do within here? Are the words of Micah and the warnings for us, for people against oppressing one another to gain our own prosperity or security? of trusting in things that we could store up or reinforce. Some of you want to, get a, want to get rid of all guns and then we'll be safer, then we'll be at peace. Some of you want to get everybody a gun and then we'll be safer, then we'll be at peace. Neither one of those will actually bring us peace. Neither one of those can make us perfectly safe. 
because the problem isn't with the gun, whether it's here or not. The problem is actually with us. I had an interesting discussion in the men's group a couple weeks ago, and I, for, I forgot this last Wednesday to come back to it, but I was asked a question. Daniel, as we've been looking at Daniel as a man in the midst of this world, Daniel represents God well in a pagan and unbelieving culture there in Babylon. He shows them what God is like. He lives it out before him even as he speaks for God to these people. And Daniel, early as a young man, Daniel is the one, he goes into the king and he says, don't kill all of those sorcerers and magicians and astrologers and all these guys that have been misleading you with their various brands of spiritism. But don't kill them because God has given me the interpretation to your dream. Daniel chapter 2. And I was asked a question by one of the guys in the room. He said, but wait, because I remarked how some of us might want, you know, if they're a bunch of sorcerers and witch doctors and spiritists and uh, getting all this other spiritual input and giving that to the king, we might say, yeah, king, go ahead and kill them. And yet Daniel doesn't do that. Daniel uses the vision God gave him to preserve the lives of others as well. And they said, but wait a minute. Back in at Mount Carmel with Elijah, Elijah had them kill all 400 of those prophets. Why is that? And the difference is this. The 400 prophets were prophesying within Israel among God's chosen people, where such was expressly forbidden among God's people. The word of God speaks to the life of the people of God, not to the lives of the people at that same level of accountability who do not know God if that's true. That's why so Daniel and Babylon, they're Babylonians. Of course they have all these other sorcerers and astrologers and all these other sources where they get their spiritual input. What do you expect? They don't know the one true God. That's why Daniel is there. But within Israel, it isn't supposed to be that way. Among God's people, we're supposed to know the true and living God. We're supposed to find our peace in Him and not in all these other things. I say that just to say this. Micah, with all of its warnings that sound so much like out there in the stuff that we are concerned about, are warnings to us. What is the prosperity that I trust in? If I can only have this, I'll be at peace. If I can only finish this off, if I can only pay off this debt, then I'll be at peace. If only we can shore things up over here a little bit, we'll be at peace. If I can just climb the ladder a little bit and be ahead of most other people, there will somehow be peace. Where can I find peace? And the word of Micah is a word to us. We will not find peace there, but we will find peace in the coming of God's Son. The answer is very clearly for us, and I, and I, and I want to develop this more next week. I want to spend most of our time next Sunday learning a few lessons from a couple of verses about Bethlehem. But in chapter 5, in verse 2, we're in the middle of nowhere. Jerusalem is the capital, has been spiritually ruined. And yet, God says, but you, Bethlehem, though you are little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. And skip down to verse 5. And he shall be their peace. He shall be their peace. That's where I'll find peace. And I want to unpack that peace, what it looks like, according to Micah, in just a couple of more minutes. So, to turn over to chapter 7. 
Turn over to chapter 7. There's a description in the first three verses that are humanity not at peace. It was true of Israel 700 years before Christ. It's true of our culture and country today. Woe is me, for I have become, chapter 7, verse 1, as when the summer fruit has been gathered and when the grapes have been gleaned and there's nothing to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. There's nothing that satisfies. I'm empty. The godly has perished from the earth, and there's no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood. Each hunts the other with a net, and their hands are on what is evil to do well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. The great man utters evil desires of his soul. The leaders can't be trusted. Like I said, it's nothing new today. It was the same a long time ago because humanity hasn't changed so much. What do we do in the midst of that then? If that's the reality that they lived in, if that's the reality we lived in, we'll hear a word from Micah, verse 7. What will I do in the midst of this? As for me, I will look to the Lord. That's where I'll find peace. As for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Verses 8 and 9 are kind of confusing there, but there's something important we need to hear. Rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will still be a light to me. Do you feel like you're, you're fallen? You will rise. Do you feel like you're, you're in the midst of darkness? The Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation or the wrath of the Lord. I am under God's condemnation except for this, because I have sinned against him, except he pleads my cause. And God executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon God's vindication. God will set me right. Do you remember earlier I made the point in chapter 1, in chapter 3, that the, uh, the actions of a sinful people had consequences on the others. The, the actions of the leaders had consequences for the whole nation. The actions of the parents' generation had consequences on the children. Remember that? That's just been turned upside down. Now the actions of God's Son, the actions of the one who will be our peace, have their effect upon us. Though I have sinned against God, it says, he will be my vindication. How does that work? Turn to the closing verses of Micah. Chapter 7 from verse 18. This is how it works. This is God's peace. This is where it can be found. This is, where, this is what everyone needs to know about Christmas because this is why the Son was born in Bethlehem. Verse 18. Who is a God like you? pardoning or forgiving iniquity, passing over transgressions, no longer holding it against him, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. You, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you be little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one who is ruler over Israel, whose coming forth is from days of old, from everlasting. God's forgiveness came to Bethlehem. 
our peace in the midst of all that we cannot control, in the midst of darkness waiting for his dawning, yet we still have peace knowing as surely as chapter 5 and verse 2 was fulfilled, as surely as that happened, God's son was born in Bethlehem. Even as it was said, 700 years before it happened, as surely as that, verse 5 will also be true, he shall be our peace. The next two weeks will continue to be hectic. The hustle and bustle of the holidays will, will easily threaten to overwhelm you. And yet, don't be afraid to push anything aside in order for you to pause and take the time for your own soul or for somebody that you know needs to hear it. And in the midst of so much hustle and bustle to stop and say, wait, 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 let's talk again about Bethlehem. Because the one who came there came to be our peace. Do you have peace with God? Do you have forgiveness in him? That's where we'll find peace. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, Lord, again, grateful to see our children sing. Grateful to be able to share the joy in this season, realizing that although in the midst of this of this of these moments of, of, of Christmas joy, knowing we live in a cold and often bleak world, knowing that people are running back and forth and to and fro around us without any understanding of your great salvation, without any hope that the Son of God has already come, he's already been born for them to be their peace. Lord, would you guard our hearts in your peace during this season? That we might show that peace to the people around us. More than anything else we do, Lord, might that be true, that we would show your peace. That we would show others where it can be found, in Jesus, our Savior. Lord, if there's someone here this morning as well that needs to talk with somebody more, that they might know your peace in Christ, Lord, make that time. Give them even the, the courage, the willingness to come and speak to me or another and know your peace in Christ before they leave here today. Father, take our, our offering of worship. Take our offering of, of, of tithes and gifts, Lord. Take the offering even of our prayers on those white cards that we would dare to ask of you for our needs because it's in you we find our peace. Lord, take these offerings then. As we give back to you, use it for your glory. Use it to bring your peace. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And all who believe said, Amen.